it's all new and, and like an adventure. Well, it could be a nice adventure. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. I can tell the fact that in this there is a truth. It's a truth that's been brought home to me by the microphone. Listen to the words I record. These are the words of, of people speaking. As a boy, four, five, six-year-old, I remember my father. Oh, it's dead scared. Oh, ha, ha, are you? <laughs> ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and other audio motes we find all over the world. From the airwaves and the internet to the great tradition of European audio festivals, we listen to radio around the globe and bring you the best of what we hear. It doesn't matter where you come from. What colour you are, what religion. If you've got it in your blood, you'll make a railway man. The microphone and the tape recorder, far from being an inhibitory agent, becomes, I think, a precipitator of the oral material. Listen to the words I record. These are the words of, of people speaking. In Great Britain, in the 1950s, a confluence of people and events helped create a new wave in radio. First, newly invented portable recording equipment made it easier for producers to leave the studio and collect the sounds and voices of the world outside. Second, three visionary people, a radio producer and two folk singers, decided to weave those sounds and voices together with music to create a brand new kind of documentary, the radio ballad. Hey, I'm road is a hard road and the work is never ending. Working night and day on the iron way with the boys who keep the engines rolling. The Ballad of John X. Most listeners loved what they heard. Of course, some didn't. But either way, the response was huge and it marked a new chapter in radio history. Between 1958 and 1964, eight radio ballads were created at the BBC by producer Charles Parker and musicians Ewan McCall and Peggy Seeger. The ballads explored everything from the lives of coal miners to the lives of teenagers, focusing mainly on communities that weren't often heard from on the radio. Then, 50 years later, in 2006, the idea was revived with another series of ballads produced in part by Sarah Parker, the daughter of Charles. Today on ReSound, we'll sample from some of the original ballads and some of the newer ones. And we'll start with Sarah Parker, talking about her father, the art of documentary making, and her unique relationship to this historic project. We want to set the stage a little bit um, just to help listeners understand exactly what was so groundbreaking about uh, the first set of ballads. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the BBC documentaries were like in the 40s and 50s before the ballads came along. Well, that was the amazing thing. You'd go out and you'd gather your material, possibly with a great big van, and then you'd come back and it would be transcribed by a secretary and then it would be read by an actor. Seems so amazing, doesn't it, that that could have happened? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what was, was the thinking behind that, that you wanted everything to sound professional and slick? I think it's possibly that old fear that we all have of clarity and the fact that 
I don't know, the home service, as it was called then, I guess, was broadcasting to sort of middle-class Britain, really, where everyone spoke like I'm afraid I do. This is the BBC home service from the Midlands. You know, and didn't have accents and didn't... And it was that fear, really, that maybe people wouldn't be able to understand a Scottish accent or a Welsh accent or, you know. So they thought, we can control it, you know. We can have actors speaking the lines of real people. Well, okay, then the ballad came along, and how did that change things? I actually think that Charles, my father, had been looking at this idea of interweaving music and speech for quite a while. And then, of course, he met Ewan McCall, who'd been doing this very much in acting, really, at street theatre in the 30s. You know, he was part of something called Red Megaphone, which was a political street theatre group. All of that sort of weaving speech and music was sort of in Ewan McCall's blood as well, I think. And they came together, really, at a point when Charles had gone off to interview the families and the colleagues of this guy, John Axon, who was a railwayman who stayed on his train despite the fact that it was likely to crash and kill him because he wanted to avoid it crashing into a passenger train and killing a lot of children. And that was the story of John Axon. And he just went there to do, I suppose, a feature. But I think he turned up, started talking, and he suddenly realised there were all these amazing guys out there, you know, doing this job that they were then quite passionate about. And they had fantastic, almost poetry in their language. And just the way people spoke about their lives that I think captivated my father. And he thought, well, we shouldn't really be taking these back and sort of sanitising them, you know, into actors' voices. These are their stories. These are real people. The old railwayman, it was a tradition. It was part of your life. It went through... Railways went through the back of your spine like Blackpool went through rock. The Ballad of John X. You sign on at the loco shed, they put you to the cleaning. In your dungarees, cleaning super dees, you're a sweeper, up a brewer, up a shovel, swing a spanner, bring a steam, raise a fire, drop a general cook and bottle washer, learning how to keep them rolling. Hey, lad, will you fetch me a bucket of red oil for a red tail lump? Charlie! Hey, Charlie! On your toes! Clean that muck out of number five. Look alive there. Get weaving. Where have you been for that aisle? Arabia? See the job on number three. They gotta strip up. Ginger! Leave the job you're working on. Help the fit up. Hold the light. Pass the wrench. The one inch span up off the bench. The one inch ream up. Hey, clean up. Do this, do that, get me this, get me that Rush job on number eight, working late, got a date I'll never make it You'll have to break it Just a bloody skivvy, that's me Two years, five years, ten years, fifteen years of clean-up oh. <laughs> huh. When the work interferes with the girls, well, you give up the work, you see Oh, <laughs> oh you... <laughs> <laughs> The ballad 
has a very particular form and the recorded voices and the music have a relationship I think that's different than in many other forms. How do you think one inspires the other? Well, I do know that in the third radio ballad, which was Singing the Fishing, that they recorded about 30 hours with a guy called Sam Lana, who was a traditional singer. We present Sam Lana of Winterton. Up jumped the air in the king of the sea. And his speech patterns and his music actually inspired the way Ewan wrote the songs and singing the fishing. Old weather boys, when the wind blow, we'll all go together. <laughs> and Ronnie Balls of Yarmouth in Singing the Fishing, a tribute to the fishing communities of East Anglia and of the Murray Firth, whose livelihood has been the herring. If you fish for the herring, they rule your life. They swim at night. You've got to be out there at night waiting for them to swim. With our nets and gear we're faring. Because it's a wonder too, you see. You pick one of these little fish up and it's vibrant with life. Like that. On the wild and wasteful ocean. The numbers realise that there's only one of millions and millions and millions. When the little people swim up properly, they really do it. It's there on the deep that we harvest and reap our bread. There's no lazy man when hearing about it. As we hunt the bonny shoals of heron. When you're doing well and catching fish, they talk to them all the time. Come on, spin up, my darlings, come on. And they absolutely cajole them into the nets. So obviously, there is a sort of poetry in speech, isn't there? A sort of lyrical quality in speech, which I think was reflected in the way Ewan wrote. And actually, surprisingly, for radio, I think it's actually quite a visual thing in that it has the bits of interview that were chosen and everything are layered in a way that you have a very sort of all-encompassing experience where all the senses are appealed to. Hmm. You know, not just sound, but there was uh, there's a section, for example, in one of the... in the programme called The Big Hure, which is about miners. And this guy talks about being down in the pit and he talks about the darkness closing in around him really but he also talks about touching the bark of the pit props you know the wood of the pit props and feeling the rough bark under his fingers and the sense of eternity the silence in the pit it's it's like infinity or, or the bottom of the ocean it's it's peaceful and yet, it's sometimes frightening. You could be driven to panic with it, I think. You've never known absolute blackness. Always there's stars at night and there's always a moon. But there, there's nothing. And you can feel this pressing on you, the darkness. You can feel this darkness. The world where a man is always a stranger 
where the miner works and lives with danger. You see, you've got the smells and you've got your look and you you would put your hands behind you and you'd feel the rough surface of the stone. You see, you'd feel the dust and the, and the props, the bark that was on the props. And you used to visualise things happening in the blackness. Here is the place where the big hewer earns his pay. Go down. Here is the face he battles with night and day. Go down. Spits on his hands, cracks rocks and boulders. Bears up the world on his own two shoulders. Digging a hole out, getting the coal. Go down. That was an excerpt of The Big Hewer, a BBC radio ballad about coal miners produced in 1961 by Charles Parker and folk singers Ewan McCall and Peggy Seeger. The first radio ballads looked at big issues and big industries in the UK, railroads, motorways, fishing, and mining. But then, in 1962, the series took a more intimate turn with The Body Blow, a ballad about the lives and limitations of five people suffering from polio, a disease that often crippled and sometimes paralyzed the people it afflicted. The Body Blow was quieter than the ballads that came before, and more psychological. After it aired, reviewers called it a tour de force. Here's an excerpt. The Body Blow. A radio ballad by Ewan McCall, Peggy Seeger and Charles Parker on the battle with poliomyelitis fought by five people. By Norma Smith. I got polio in 1958 and um, I'm now left paralysed below the waist. No use in my legs at all. By Heather Ruffle. Well, I'm left virtually without any movement except my head. Breathing is difficult. I use my neck muscles a lot, particularly when I'm lying down. But sitting up, I have to frog breathe. That's why I sound a bit disjointed. By Paul Bates. The most upsetting thing about having your tracheotomy down or your throat cut is that you lose the basic form of communication you cannot speak, and that is the most upsetting thing. But for some reason, I could speak. And I still can, uh, quite independently of when the machine's going up or down, whereas other tracheotomies like Dutchy, for instance, they can only speak on the inspiration phase of the machine. By Dutchy Holland, to whose machine-chopped speech the tape recorder, with the editing that it makes possible, can restore wholeness. We can still do many things that we used to do in the old days. So please don't pity us, and worst of all, don't look at a crippled person and think they're mental because believe me they're not and the battle fought back in the everyday world of the housewife by jean hagger and of course there's always embarrassing moments in your life when you're disabled not only in finding new ways in dressing yourself and but you do come up against people. The battle of five people against polio. We present The Body Blow. Wow. 
What day did the world stop moving? What day did the earth stop turning? What day did the sun stop shining? What day? On the Thursday, I was in one world. On the Monday and Tuesday, I seemed to have been thrown into a completely different world. It was in the season of the year when the small birds, they do fly. When the flowers are blooming fresh and gay and the sun burns in the sky. I spied a fair young woman by the margin of the sea. At taking of the pleasant air with her young babe. But her knee. All through that summer's afternoon, how they did sport and play. Till tired at last upon the sand, that fair young woman lay. She heard the cries of wheeling gulls and the murmur of the sea. But she did not hear the coming of the hidden enemy. All drunk and drowsy with the sun, she lay there half in sleep. While undetected to her side, the enemy did creep. Death did stand at her right hand and did no mercy show. But to this young woman cruelly dealt a body blow. Where were you when the birds stopped singing? Where were you? the flowers stopped blooming where were you at the bodies dying where were you in august i went down to brighton with my daughter for about three or four days you know having the usual nice time taking on the swings and going on the beach and I came home to tea and I had this awful sensation around my waist. I couldn't stand the material of my blouse on my waist and all my legs were aching. I went to bed early, took a couple of aspirins, and Carol was sleeping with me because we were a bit squashed for a room. And I couldn't stand the touch of her, you know, her legs on my body in bed. I felt most peculiar sensations. I was an awful lot of pain and had a very bad night. I had the doctor on the Sunday morning and he said it was flu. And so, of course, everybody thought it was flu. So I came downstairs, so not to be a nuisance, you know, with trays and things, and I, I fell, fell on the floor. I was very surprised, you know. I mean, I'd had flu before, but I'd never exactly been so weak as to fall down. So, of course, I came and laid on the couch all the Sunday. I felt terribly ill. And Sunday night, I don't think I could have been conscious, really. Blow by blow, this cruel foe does strike with grim intent. 
Until the body is laid low, all strength and courage spent. The citadel is occupied, the road from brain to hand is blocked now by the enemy, and death is in command. I was sort of shivering, terribly cold, and this terrible headache, it felt as if I had my head split open. Bang, 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 like someone inside with drums. Terrific pains up each side of my neck. Felt as if it was hanging half on the top. And he said, I think you've got a touch of rheumatics in the head. Your neck muscles go and you walk around like some old man. I wondered whatever was happening to me. My arms and legs started to go and then finally my breathing and when I was rushed to hospital I wondered what on earth was going on. It is sort of dreamlike when you've had a shock to the body and of course then your mind there's a shock to the mind as well and of course you don't see anybody's face I mean they haven't got any sort of identity to you just eyes, that makes it more weird. They're masked, because you're so infectious. You just see eyes, different sorts of eyes, peering at you. Wearing white gowns and white masks, frightened eyes, looking at me. I got up to make my husband a cup of tea. Sit up. Your brain will say, Sit up, for suddenly nothing happens. You think, but I didn't sit up. I'm losing the use of my left arm. He said, go on, you're havering. I said, I'm not. What's the matter? I'm losing the use of it. I could feel the use going out of the shoulder, right down to the fingertips. And he, I can always remember him lifting my arm and turning it round and round and round to try to put the life into it again. I think, gosh, my legs are gone. I can't move my arms. When you get such a shock. It felt, to me, it felt like all the muscles were being actually knocked out of action. It was like electric light bulbs, all burning out. One, two, three, four. Just one after the other. Yes. It's a strange thing about nature that you just don't realise how serious a thing is at the time. It's almost nature's way of protecting you. The hidden foe, it lies in wait and chooses place and time. It strikes the woman in her bloom, the young man in his prime. The runner who is in full stride, the soldier in the field, the strong, the young, the healthy, to this enemy must yield. Do you recall how you climbed the mountains? The morning swim in the salt sea water What was the name of the powerful sprinter? Was it you? Ten thousand miles across the world Far from his native land The young man 
leads his company, a carbine in his hand. By swamp and jungle path he goes and stalks his human foe. But the hidden enemy behind him deals a body blow. 1954, August 1954, serving in Malaya, doing what I think would have been one of my last patrols. I got up and my men carried all my equipment except the carbine. I had no thoughts of what might be wrong with me, I just felt ill. They got me into an Ulster to fly down to Kuala Lumpur, down to the base hospital. And I'm rather big, six feet four, which doesn't, you know, go easily into that sort of thing. It dragged me out feet first. I got into the ward, was helped to undress, and I sat on the edge of the bed, and then decided to, to lie down, be more comfortable, lay back, and I couldn't get my left leg onto the bed. And that was the last time that I sat on the side of a bed or anywhere. And from then on, things really began to move. I was transferred to a tank respirator. And I had the bulb of polio, which means the paralysis of the swallowing. It's quite simple eventually. You drown. You see, in your excretions, you can't cope with them. And they, the idea is that you put a tube down the person's throat, feed air through the tube, and then you can take them out of the iron lung, anaesthetize them, and then cut their throats literally. Put a shortened tube straight into the throat, which I've still got eight years later, and breathe them through that, respire them through it. The unfortunate bear is still fighting, and they put this tube down my throat, and I bit through it. Um, I also bit the anaesthetist, and he tried to retrieve the, the broken tube. He tells quite an amusing story. I believe his language is marvellous. He's a good, strong, strong Yorkshireman. I've met him since, and we're extremely good friends, and he always sort of licks his thumb when he comes in, but... Anyway, they did the operation in what I think they would claim to be a world record of about 28 seconds. Um, no anesthetics were necessary because I was out and almost gone anyway. Every cell is and raided. Every muscle is invaded. Every nerve affected Brain from body disconnected Lungs are the next objective Life is a turn of the head The 
is helpless and waits to be fed. The hands that obeyed you, the legs that conveyed you, just memories now you're dependent on somebody else. All the time people are doing things for you. I'm sure this is one of the hardest things all through. One is grateful, and yet one doesn't want to be grateful because one doesn't want to be so dependent. And that is so hard. You know, it's much easier to give than to receive. And my goodness, it's hard to receive all the time. I think at that point, if one just lies back and takes it, then one probably would pick out. I used to hate it. It's one of the very few things that I still get hopping mad about. You have to ask for every mortal thing. You know, resentful. I was a very nasty patient at first. I wasn't grateful for anything that was done for me. And I knew I wasn't being nice about it, and that made me feel worse, you know? And apart from that, you see, then you've got the indignity of all this. People cleaning your teeth as if they're doing a doorstep, you know? scrubbing away and your mouth stuck up with toothpaste, tons more than you'd use yourself. You feel that you could be a clumsy thing and you, you sort of clench your teeth and say, for goodness sake, it's not a doorstep you're scrubbing, it's my teeth. Come along, dear, you know, open up, talk to us of your semi-idiot child and this vigorous scrubbing of your teeth. You sort of dread it. One just laid there and demanded. You wanted your hand moved or your foot moved. And then to be told, wait a minute, I'm busy. You hate them for it. Can't they see that you want your hand moved? No one gets completely intolerant. I'm sure the concern was to, to get this physical disorders sorted out as best they could be, to get this lump that I'd been presented with, get it organized. If I wasn't going to move well, we could get comfortable and get the insides to work properly, everything becomes a major problem. It doesn't frighten you, the respirator, because I think you're so glad to not struggle for breath. And when this thing is put on you, or you're put into it, the relief you stop struggling and this thing breathes for you and you feel calm. This will breathe for you. You're safe as a babe in a cradle of steel. You're waiting and hoping and praying your body will heal. But your mind fills with fear as the moment draws near. To part from your friendly machine and try breathing alone. That was an excerpt of The Body Blow, a radio ballad produced by Ewan McCall, Charles Parker, and Peggy Seeger for the BBC in 1962. Now, The Body Blow is really fascinating editing terms. Sarah Parker because it's about polio victims. And there was this thing called the iron lung, where people were so paralyzed that they were only kept alive by being put in this 
sort of coffin-like thing, from what I understand. I mean, I never saw one which sort of breathed for you. And it made speaking very difficult. And in the editing process, they actually edited this man so that his speech was fluent. And then at the end, they reverted back. So you had to listen to him saying, ah, yeah, you know, his speech was all broken up. We have a saying in this ward that we live dangerously. And by golly, you do. If someone's forgotten to put a shilling in a meter, bang goes your air supply. And then everybody, they hunt for another shilling. See, we can't afford to have a quarterly meter here. So that, that showed just how far Charles's editing processes had come since the beginning, really. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today we're sampling from some of the historic BBC radio ballads and talking to Sarah Parker, daughter of the original producer Charles Parker. Should you be so moved, write your own ballad, then send it to us. Questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. It's not just a song and then a bit of actuality and then another song. It's all intertwined like a tapestry. The original radio ballads changed the way people thought about radio, and they influenced generations of radio producers who followed. In 2006, 50 years after the original ballads aired, six new ballads were produced by John Leonard and John Tams, exploring everything from the sectarian conflict in Northern Ireland to the HIV epidemic. Sarah Parker, among others, contributed to the project. It became a way of reconnecting with her dad, original ballad producer Charles Parker, and discovering their uncanny similarities as radio producers. Of course, my father had died. He died in 1980. And I missed him so much that I found it difficult to even li- to listen to his voice or anything. And in fact, until I started doing research here and sat and listened to recordings of lectures he'd given, I hadn't heard his voice properly for 20 years. Wow. <laughs> it was amazing, actually. The microphone and the tape recorder, far from being an inhibitory agent, becomes, I think, a precipitator of the oral material. And when I heard him talking about his relationship with interviews and how he interviewed and all this sort of thing, everything started to fall into place for me. I'd sort of developed certain styles, as you do Mm -hmm. in radio, your own radio, really, Um, you know, when you're making programmes. And suddenly, my sorts of inclinations and my interests I realized that it's sort of in the DNA. Mm-hmm. And that was weird. <laughs> to think that you had only stumbled upon something that was your fate from the beginning? Absolutely. <laughs> I couldn't have done anything else, really. Did you re-listen to the old ones specifically to prepare for doing these new ones? Now, that's very interesting because John Leonard and John Tams said that they didn't. They deliberately, although they knew them very well because they'd listened to them and been inspired by them, you know, in their program making over their lives, they actually put them away and said, no, we don't want to be influenced. We want to go ahead, you know, in our own way. For me, 
I did actually, I'm afraid, although I don't know if John <laughs> would like to know this, but I, I definitely listened to... Um, my secret's out. Yes, my secret is out. No, I listened to The Body Blow, in fact, a couple of times the night before I went off to do the first interview for the AIDS programme. How did it help you? I think it helped me sort of realise the amount of detail and even ordinary sorts of things that could actually be powerful. Hmm. What do you think you learned from your dad as a radio producer? That's the weird, that's the strange thing. I don't think I actually learnt it directly from him. It was sort of by osmosis or something, or it's just there. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, in what ways do you see similarities between your work and your dad's work? I've always liked montage. I've always liked layering stuff. I've always liked putting music with stuff. I'm actually a really good interviewer. I can ask people things and get them to say things that perhaps are surprising. And I discover that I have, and, and maybe just everybody does this, that they sit at the feet of their interviewees. But the way p some people talk about the way Charles interviewed is actually the way I interview. Hmm. Don't you think that's odd? Yeah, well, did you know about that before you started interviewing? Or is that something no. that you found out about your dad later and found I've, out? I've just found it out now. Really? Yes. That's <laughs> what's so strange about it. Incidentally, it's, I find it a very good thing to sit literally at the feet of people because it helps the position of the microphone. And psychologically, it's a good thing to be lower than them anyway, so that they physically dominate the proceedings. I mean, they are simply talking with themselves as they try to really conjure this experience and capture it and communicate it. That's really fascinating. You've got a genetic leaning, I guess. To radio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yes. That was Sarah Parker, contributor to the 2006 Radio Ballads, written and produced by John Leonard and John Tams. Here's an excerpt from one of the modern ballads that she worked on. It's called The Enemy Within. The one message that I give is it doesn't matter who you are, what color you are, what sexuality you are, what religion you are. If you're going to have sex without a condom with somebody who you don't know whether they're positive or not, you're putting yourself at risk. There's a world out there you're facing unprotected. You can't stay wrapped in cotton wool for long Aprons to rings and safety nets discarded And off you go to deal with rights and wrongs Unprotected, unprotected From the salt and pepper troubles from above Unprotected, unprotected Who'd have thought you'd need to take such care in love? I had my moments. I had a, a time where I didn't want to leave the house for a few months. I just lost it, and I think it was just grief catches up with you, but then you pull yourself together and you think, well, get on with it, really. But I think all people with HIV mourn from time to time what should have been, people that you've lost, but it's your own loss, your lost life. My name's Anne-Marie Byrne. And I'm 57 years old. I'm white Zimbabwean. And I'm living with the HIV virus. 
it is Cecilia Lee. I am 41 this year. My first thought was, who is going to look after my son? What is going to happen to him? And what is going to happen to me? Because knowing you're HIV positive, you think tomorrow is the end of everything. My name is Betty Feldman. I am a very old lady, and uh, my son Michael died of AIDS in 1991. I'm not just HIV positive, I'm not much more than that. I'm a mother and I'm a nice person and I do lots of volunteer work. So I, I try not to say I am HIV positive because it's not the sum of what I am. There's a lot more to me than that. I am a woman. I have a big life. A mother and daughter. My lover's widowed wife. These things are so much bigger than the enemy that lives within the shadow. Is not the sum of what I am. I was born in Germany, but I was raised in Denmark because my father was Danish, my mother was German, and she went home to her mummy to give birth. Yeah, I am today classified as a survivor of the Holocaust. I came to UK from Uganda in 1990. At the time, the civil wars that was going on, you know, the tribal sort of wars in the in the country. It's a lot of chaos. I am an exile. I fled alone from a civil. The reason why I came to this country was my husband's uh, family's home were completely destroyed. Their village, he is in the bush fighting the government. Having seen what has happened to, to others, I couldn't just sit there and wait for things also to happen to me. This is a man who had an honours degree in, at university and taught kabuki and, you know, did a lot of things. Give it a He 
was very vain, being an actor. And I think when he realized that he wasn't so good looking anymore and he wasn't top of the heap, he gave up. It's not the sun. That was an excerpt from The Enemy Within, a modern BBC radio ballad produced by John Tams and John Leonard with Sarah Parker. The ballad was very much a story that the wandering minstrel would tell, wouldn't he? He'd go around and sing about what was happening up the road. <laughs> I guess, you know, it would be the, a storytelling device. Now, an amazing coincidence. While Sarah Parker and the other producers were reviving the radio ballads over in London, we had a piece of convergent evolution going on here in the United States. Public radio producers Dan Collison and Elizabeth Meister, totally unfamiliar with the BBC ballads, decided to collaborate with singer-songwriter Sufjan Stevens on a project about the recent sighting of the ivory-billed woodpecker in Brinkley, Arkansas. The bird was long thought to be extinct, and the sighting provoked a small media frenzy, an influx of feverish birders to a town that had been economically depressed for quite a long time. Dan and Elizabeth interviewed residents about how the bird had changed their lives. Then they handed the tape over to Sufjan and asked him to write a song. Here's a modern American radio ballad called Lord God Bird. My name is Sandra Kimmer, and I'm executive director and secretary and dishwasher and mop pusher, anyway, for the Brinkley Chamber of Commerce. And I was born in Brinkley, and it's flat since we're on the Delta, and you can see forever. In the Delta sun, down in Arkansas, it's the great God bird with its altar call. It's a place where you can find spiritual solace. We have so many churches. I am Gene D. Priest, the owner of Gene's Barbecue and Restaurant in Brinkley, Arkansas. I came to Brinkley in 1957. I was born and raised a 15 mile of here. It was like 5,200 population in Brinkley. It's down to 3,800 now. So it's a strictly farming community. It's a place where you can call a wrong number and talk for five minutes. My name is Penny Childs. I'm the owner and operator at Penny's Family Hair Care. We have a good little town. We have a good group of people. It's just our economy is not real good. You know, minimum wage jobs is what we mostly have. We have lots of tree-lined streets. I'm Billy Clay, and I'm currently, they're letting me be mayor of Brinkley for a little while. We have people that care about their community and about the children, which we really do feel are our future. We're coming up on graduation, and that is, to me, a very sad occasion because we're exporting these young people out because there's not anything really primarily to hold them. You know, some will go off to college, but they won't return. On the great bayou Where they saw it fall It's the great God My name is Gene Sparling. I'm an amateur woodsman and naturalist and adventurer from Arkansas. Was kayaking through Bio de View 
in February of 2004 and was in a particularly ancient primeval section of forest. Came around a small bend. I'd set my paddle down and was sitting back in my kayak, reveling in the peace and beauty and wonder of the place I was in. And a large bird flew into the channel and landed on a tree, and I thought to myself, that looks like a woodpecker on steroids. We learned today great comebacks are still possible in this great country, and this is a big one. The ivory-billed woodpecker, last seen back in 1944 and thought to be extinct since then. It has been rediscovered in Arkansas. The bird, once believed magical by Native Americans, Legend was has it when ago, people would see one, they would exclaim in shock, Lord God, what a bird. first heard that they had spotted it of course I was like everybody else you got to be kidding but I had been in the area where they found it and I'm almost sure I've seen it before but I didn't know what I was looking at so you know it's one of those things that just looked like a small pterodactyl coming out of a tree to me. I'm Chuck Waller I've been in Brinkley since 1946 and I was raised right within a mile of where they probably discovered this bird. A boy growing up I wasn't really interested in looking for that bird. Back then I was interested in catching me a crappie or a bass or catching me a coon or whatever it took to survive out in the swamp. And it's a beautiful place. I've been a many happy hour out there. My name is Boyce Allwhite. I'm the fire chief of Brinkley Fire Department. I've seen some big woodpeckers back there, but I never knew that they had one extinct, any, you know, like this. So there's a good possibility, yes, I've seen the bird. Just didn't realize it. But, I mean, this is deer and deer season, so I'm concentrating on deer and wishing this woodpecker gone. I really didn't know anything like about the Audubon Society or anything like that. I've never been into birds. I thought woodpeckers was all woodpeckers. Now if it was a new duck, it'd be the greatest thing in the world. Everybody in the world would be talking about this new species of duck. But like I say, this is a woodpecker and people just weren't taking it at first to heart. Truth was I was a little bit ticked off at first, you know, because here I am been out here fishing and hunting for some 40 years and then all of a sudden they say you can't set foot on this property. Wildlife officials also trying to protect the bird's habitat by closing 5,000 acres of popular fishing and hunting areas. KRK4 but, you know, after thinking about the bird and what it could do for this area, possibly bring into the economy and to this town and surrounding towns, sure, I'm for it. But if the bird watchers can watch, the hunters ought to be able to hunt. And the fishermen ought to be able to fish. That's my opinion. And the hunters beware. Or the fishers fall And paradise might close From its safe flight flood It's the great God birth through it all You ready to order? Yeah, you're really special. Ribs, you want it dry or with sauce? Welcome to Gene's Barbecue. Home of the yellow-billed woodpecker. No, it's, it's ivory. Ivory. Ivory-billed. 
got your shirts in. I love yep. them. Oh, I love that. That looks really good. Well, on the front it said Gene's Barbecue and Restaurant. The back says home of the Ivory Bill Burger. The bird is the word. Well, it's two big hamburger patties, two slices of mozzarella cheese, pepper bacon, and a sesame seed bun. Jeans had this Iberville cheeseburger. We said, well, if they can have a cheeseburger, I can have a haircut. Woodpecker haircut, $25. It'll come to a point at the top, fire engine red, and then the back and sides are tight with black on that and then a little bit of white in the front, kind of copying his nose a little bit, you know. You know, you got to realize we're here in the Delta. We're right next door to the poorest county in the whole United States, and we have been wanting something praying for an industry. We're here on the interstate halfway between Memphis and Little Rock and uh, we are going to uh, put skirts on our billboards. Ivory Bill Woodpecker exit 216. My name is Doug Hunt. Some guy, I don't know who said this, said there would be 3,000 people come from England out of the Audubon Society. Now those people got money. I'm uh, Ronnie Steinbeck and uh, I own and operate Paradise Wings Hunting Lodge, which I'm going to have to change to Paradise Wings Lodge. What I'm hoping to do is to uh, do boat tours. It'll have to be small boats, and we'll have to be camouflaged and uh, go in there just real quiet with trolling motors and ease through those trees and see if we can actually find them. We have good duck hunting here. It's three months out of a year, November, December, January. It's real good, and then it fades out. But this bird thing is going to be good to your round. And my business has already improved like 20%. Everybody's enthused. We are just so excited. I get phone calls all day. <gasps> you know, I have an old pattern of a, a woodpecker, and I just might see if I can quilt something up like that. I draw my pattern out on the board, and then I just follow the lines. I'm Rita Clements, and I have uh, Rita's Art. I have a shop. And that's basically what I've been working on is the woodpecker cutouts. You know, we have a Rita Clements, wonderful artist, and here she is just barely making it, thinking she's going to have to move down to Louisiana. Maybe she could sell more down there. Well, now she's not going to have to move. You know, she's going to be able to make a living. What I'm really hoping for them to be able to do is find the nest and find where it's at and then set up a video there at his nest where someone that's just come off the interstate can just cruise right on over there to the convention center, go in. they got a big screen set up there where that you can see the woodpecker on his nest doing what the woodpecker is doing and that way everybody in the whole public in the world even though you haven't seen it for real but you could actually say you actually seen an ivory bill woodpecker he is an important bird right now very important bird <laughs> like he's just been resurrected stands out in my mind, I'm 41, I've been in Brinkley 22 years, is the tornado. And that just happened a few years ago, and it was an F4, and that was really bad. But we're just small, never going to get noticed or recognized for anything, and it's great. It's just natural that people want something good to happen, and so I have no problem with Gene marketing his uh, hamburger and calling it an ivory bill. It's a good sandwich, too. I think there could be a point where it might get a little crass or gaudy. But this is United States of America. That's what makes us great, you know. And if it helps him give two more waitresses jobs here and they can pay taxes, 
you know, and they can go to uh, Walmart or they can go to the local cottage mall and buy something that they want. That's what we're all about. And free enterprise. Oh, that's America. That's what makes us great. We've got to protect him for our kids. If he leaves, then all of this revenue and possibilities that we had will be gone. And that's what I've been telling people. Love the bird because I think we're going to love what he's going to do for our town. And the watchers beware Lest they see it fall And paradise might laugh When at last it falls And the sewing machine That was Lord God Bird, produced by Dan Collison and Elizabeth Meister for Long Haul Productions, with music by Sufjan Stevens. And now a Lord God Bird update. After a couple of years of extensive and intensive searching by teams of ornithologists, no one has seen another ivory-billed woodpecker, which raises doubts that the initial sightings were valid. Brinkley, which was banking on people coming from all over the world to try and see an ivory build, has not cashed in in any significant way. And Penny Childs, owner of Penny's Family Hair, has discontinued selling Ivory Bill t-shirts and is no longer offering her customized Ivory Bill woodpecker haircut. In the old tradition, the one thing you have when people are speaking well is passion, is a complete involvement in the concepts, a sort of white heat, really, and the way the words vibrate. Hey, this is Delaney Hall. I produce the show. And that, who you heard just a second ago, was Charles Parker, the creator, along with Peggy Seeger and Ewan McColl, of the groundbreaking BBC radio ballads of the 1950s. So you've heard a few examples of the radio ballads in the last hour, but coming up, you'll have a chance to get the inside story on how exactly they were made. Charles Parker's daughter, producer Sarah Parker, will be in town for a special event. She'll talk about the original ballads, the art of documentary making, and her unique relationship to the Historic Radio Ballads Project. So come out for Like Blackpool Went Through Rock, the story of the radio ballads, next Sunday, October 12th at 7 p.m. at the Old Town School of Folk Music. Call 773-728-6000 to get tickets, or visit thirdcoastfestival.org for more information. All right, back to Gwen. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Delaney Hall and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our production intern is Katie Mingle, and our festival intern is Ben Winter. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from all over the world, and subscribe to our podcast. Thanks to Sarah Parker, John Leonard, John Tams, and Topic Records for making the original radio ballads available to us. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.